Hi, my name is Riley Haas. I'm the host of No Cultural Authority, a raucous podcast about classic albums, and I'm also the co-host of the Backtrack, a hockey podcast about the Hall of Fame. This podcast you're about to listen to is based on my 2013 book, The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It, which you can find online at Amazon and Smashwords. Welcome to another episode of The Beatles Are the Greatest Rock Band of All Time, and I Can Prove It. My name is Riley Haas, the author of that book, and I'm joined once again by Dave. Hello. How you doing? I'm not doing too bad. And today we have one last preliminary chapter, or episode, I guess, since it's a podcast, uh, talking about the Beatles before we get into their actual music. So before I discuss the Beatles album by album, single by single, I want to familiarize you with the band. My general attitude to this is if you don't care much about the Beatles, you don't think much of them, you don't really know much about them, the musicians themselves. And I, for whatever reason, I feel like it's important to know that a little bit to understand how they evolved. So this is a brief primer, uh, letting everyone know approximately what each person was responsible for. So later on, we're not wondering about roles and, and that kind of thing. So the important thing to note here is that Everything is approximate. The Beatles catalog is really, really big for a band that recorded music professionally for less than eight years, but it was also released at a time before documentation got really, really careful. With the exception of jazz, documentation back then was not great. Uh, jazz people were very good about like noting who was in the studio, who was playing what instrument, who was the engineer, all this stuff. And in the rock world, even in the 60s, most studios, it was actually not really clear in fact you get a lot of credits for example with session musicians from the 60s where it just says like orchestra or something and there were like 40 people there and nobody got a credit for anything and that's true of session musicians but it's also true sometimes of the actual uh, band members who might have switched instruments or something especially the beatles who played a bunch of different instruments they might have done something different than they normally did and unless someone wrote it down nobody really knows the big thing is that Time is a lot, a lot of time has elapsed and memories uh, have gotten foggy. And yes, it, you can currently go watch Get Back right now and see exactly who played what and who said what during the recordings for that album that never came to be, which we'll eventually talk about. But you can't do that for any of their other albums. And so there might be, in some cases, there are recordings of them talking and stuff. But for the most part, there is, there's sort of a haze a little bit in terms of credits. The other thing that's important to note is that the songwriting credits for the Beatles are approximate for uh, two reasons. The first is that Lennon and McCartney received joint credit for all the songs that either of them wrote while they were together as a band after a certain point sometime in the late 50s or early 60s. I don't quite remember. However, since about late 1964, maybe even early 1965, they mostly wrote their songs by themselves with a little bit of input from each other. Sometimes lots of input. It really depended. But often they would write the song mostly formed and then they would bring it into the band. And whether if Lennon wrote it, whether McCartney participated a lot or not, it was credited as Lennon McCartney and same thing with Paul McCartney. And also crucially for the two other members of the band, if George Harrison or Ringo Starr contributed anything, almost always they didn't get any credit whatsoever songwriting wise. And the same actually goes the other direction. George Harrison, apparently some of his songs were co-written at least a little bit, by either Lennon and McCartney, and they are not credited. The one exception to this is Ringo Starr, whose real name is Richard Starkey, 
was given joint credits on a couple Lennon McCartney songs when he, whether or not he contributed lyrics, they were written for him. And I guess the idea was to give him a little bit of extra songwriting royalty. So they put his name on it. Now, before they started recording professionally, they did actually have credits for whoever contributed, but it was sta- some, there was a decision made in the early 60s to standardize this. So I will often say a song is written by John Lennon or Paul McCartney, and you will look up the song on Wikipedia or something, and it will credit both of them. And so just pointing that out, the official credits are Lennon-McCartney. That is not true. Also, I should point out that the songs we're going to talk about in this podcast are not, do not include any of the songs or most of the songs that they wrote for other artists. It's certainly any of the songs they wrote for other artists they didn't record. Uh, There are a lot of them. Um, They were actually extremely prolific in writing songs for other people in their early days. They stopped doing it after a while. The other thing is it doesn't include any songs that they started to record for the band but never actually released a recording while they were together because some of those actually were then later recorded either by well by any of the members Lennon McCartney or Harrison later on appeared on solo albums we're not talking about any of those either also I should point out I'm not concerned with the Beatles as a story a biography so we're not going to talk about the Quarrymen who are the original Beatles and we're not going to talk about the Silver Beatles and we're not going to talk about Stu Sutcliffe uh, who was the fifth Beatle for a while we're not going to talk about Pete Best, the original drummer, though I'm sure there's a bunch of old people howling about that. We're just, it's, I'm not interested in in the pre-professional stuff. One thing I want to note before we get into it is that uh, three of the four Beatles um, played many, many thousands of hours as a band together before the Beatles recorded. There's that psychological theory about 10,000 hours, which was well established maybe 10 years ago and has now come under some criticism and nobody's really sure uh, whether it's accurate or not but the general idea behind that is that if you uh play and record together or sorry you do anything for a long period whether it's playing music or whether it's painting or whatever a certain number of hours you will get to a certain level of expertise now again it's it's become uh, a little contested but the fact is that lennon mccartney and harrison have played together for years before their big break and two of their years notably were in Hamburg, in Germany, in which they played in front of very unfriendly audiences. And I am not making this up. Sometimes they played five shows a day. So they had huge amounts of musical experience playing together. And one thing that helps explain why they were so successful is that they had been, like I said, they've been playing together as musicians for fun for something like five or six years before their big break. But at least two of those years were just extremely intense. The equivalent of intense touring. They were they had a residency and they just played constantly. And it was basically unheard of that level of experience for an unsigned band, certainly in the UK and mostly in the US, but prim- in the UK in particular, nobody had that kind of experience before they were signed. So we're going to start off talking about the Beatles themselves and, and their roles. So George Harrison, he was their... Lead guitarist to start off, uh, he composed approximately 22 of their songs. We think he co-wrote a few others. He wrote lyrics to all his songs, but he um, sometimes had help from people, as far as we know, in writing those lyrics. It wasn't his strong suit. He also wrote a ton of songs near the end. The Beatles never recorded, which we are not going to talk about. Uh, but infamously, Beatles George Harrison's first post-Beatles solo album is a triple album, and there's a reason. It's because he had all this material, and one of the reasons the Beatles broke up is because George Harrison was never allowed to put on more than two. I think one album, he got three songs onto it. 
However, he did contribute to all the arrangements of the songs he played on, or nearly all of them. And in fact, as I noted or alluded to earlier, he actually sometimes wrote parts that he was never credited for on Lennon or McCartney songs. He was also notably the arranger of the Indian musicians that uh, were used on a few songs when they got into Indian music. Like I said, as the band's lead guitarist, he also helped, as I will get into later on, he helped introduce the electric 12-string guitar to rock uh, audiences. He also occasionally played bass in the studio. He was the only, uh, one of two members of the band who played slide guitar. He is also credited at times with playing the violin, but not well. It was a it sort of he didn't know how to play it. He just they did they picked up a lot of instruments. But more famously, he introduced the sitar to a rock audience, and he also played some other Indian instruments, the tambura, the sword mandel, the sword mandel, I guess it's pronounced. He eventually started playing the keyboards near the end of their career, though you can watch him in the new Get Back film playing the piano rather poorly, which is quite interesting. He also uh, played percussion uh, very early on, and he was briefly involved in their exploration of tape music, though that was much more the other two. The Beatles were not credited with producing their records until Abbey Road, which is their last recorded album, if not their last released album. He is credited as a co or as associate producer or something on Abbey Road, but it's um, it's worth noting that that was more music tradition. They were, though they were never actually in like tinkering with the recordings themselves, with a few notable exceptions, they were actively involved in record production in the sense of assessing the recordings and making decisions about what to cut and what to leave in and all that stuff. Just back then, you know, the the idea was you had a, a a producer who produced it and the band, and there was a lot of you know creative interplay there between the Beatles and their producer George Martin. But it's not really credited until Abbey Road. He also probably produced the Indian musician sessions that he was involved in because they were recorded in India without the Beatles producer. So if you're interested in checking out why George Harrison is a famous lead guitarist, I can highlight the following songs to you, though we are going to talk about all of them at some point during the course of this podcast. Those songs are I Call Your Name, A Hard Day's Night, Babies in Black, What You're Doing, Yes It Is, I Need You, Norwegian Wood, Love to... I can never say this one correctly. Love to you. I want to tell you, within you, without you, it's all too much. The inner light, while my guitar gently weeps, long, 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 old brown shoe, something, and here comes the sun. And some of those songs he he wrote, and are, I'm listed in them because he wrote them, but the early ones are all because of the important thing he did with his guitar, in the case of Norwegian Wood, his uh, a sitar. So he was the youngest Beatle, but he was also arguably the only Beatle deserving of the true uh, virtuoso in the true sense, even though. What he did at the time will now seem quite traditional. As I said, he contributed a few songs, but over time he contributed more and more songs as the years went by. And as I mentioned before, he was just flowing, like they were flowing out of him by the time the band broke up. He wrote the Indian music for the band when they performed it. As far as we know, we don't think someone else did it for him. And though his solos and leads don't sound particularly forward-thinking now, for a brief period, he played a huge role in the development of the rock guitar. He was the first British rock lead guitarist of any note, and people imitated him and soon eclipsed him. He was also, I mean, there might have been other people at the same time playing in clubs. Uh, certainly some of his contemporaries were doing more interesting things in clubs at the time, but he actually made it on you know, records before everybody else. However, he was very soon eclipsed in this sense, in terms of his innovation by many of his contemporaries, uh, Pete Townsend. Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, Jimi Hendrix, 
pick pick a late sixties guitarist and they they took what Harrison did and and went way way beyond what Harrison did. But I would say he's he he's a his tone is excellent and he's also uh, a fairly economical guitar player and a very tasteful one mostly. Um, in fact, the the harder rougher solos on some of the Beatles tracks are mostly not played by George Harrison; they're played by Paul McCartney particularly. And though he did have the odd solo, so I'd I'd say check out the song "What You're Doing" for a really strange early Beatles guitar solo where you're just like kind of mystified as to why why he's doing what he's doing. So he extended and uh, perfected traditional rock and roll technique, but he also introduced Indian scales, and he was also a very early user of electronic equipment to change the sound of the guitar. He was one of the earliest users of pedal effects on his guitars in 1965, which is quite early, and in 1966. He had a backwards guitar solo, which might be the earliest backwards guitar solo I'm aware of, uh, where he played and then they flipped the tape around and and he specifically practiced so that he could get it to sound good when it was played backwards, which is the thing that's really bonkers to me. He was also at least, I don't know if he was humble, but he was deferential. And so notably, he would step aside to let someone else in the band play uh, lead a few times. Uh, Lennon was also playing some solos early on and sort of stopped. And then, of course, as McCartney became more and more of a control freak, he played more and more of his own solos. But Harrison let them, and at least until the end, wasn't really fighting them over that. Uh, he was also, as I mentioned before, the first major rock musician to play an electric 12-string guitar, which might not seem like a big deal now, but it was a really big deal because it invented, it helped invent folk rock, had a huge influence on the folk rock explosion. And anything that's labeled jangle now is influenced by the fact that George Harrison decided to play an electric 12-string guitar, because that is the sound of Jangle, is is the electric 12-string guitar, even when some people are playing it on a six-string now. He was also the first major rock musician, as I mentioned before, to record with Indian instruments. He mastered the sitar, and I don't know if he ever mastered the timbre or the sword of Mandel, but he, he played them. As I mentioned before, he was a bit of a backup percussionist as well, and like McCartney and like Lennon to some degree, and uh, like his bandmates, he also he contributed numerous instruments over the course of their career, uh, whatever was required to achieve what they were working for. And this included uh, instruments like the violin that he didn't know how to play. Near the end of his career, he notably convinced the Beatles to take up the Moog synthesizer, which he had he had used on um, one of his early solo albums he released before the Beatles broke up. And the Moog plays an important part in Abbey Road. And of course, by playing it on Abbey Road, though, they weren't the first band to use the Moog. They helped make it a standard instrument um, in the world of rock music. And somehow Harrison, who was like the least interested in avant-garde music for the most part, is the guy who caused that, which is really weird. And as I said, he was extremely unhappy by the end, but he managed to contribute his best songs by the time they broke up. On the other hand, he had you know another 30 or 40 sitting around that the Beatles refused to play. So that's George Harrison. So next up, I'm trying to do this in alphabetical order rather than uh, based on the amount they contributed. We have John Lennon, the band's original lead singer. Uh, he composed approximately 65 songs, co-wrote approximately another 41, which is 106. And that's we're talking about, like, again, and this is over the course of about seven and a half years. Mostly they were composed with McCartney. He wrote uh, lyrics to 63 of the songs that he wrote by himself, and he co-wrote lyrics to 43, so slightly more than he co-wrote musically. And then, of course, he wrote a bunch of songs that weren't used, uh, some of which emerged in his solo work. He 
obviously contributed to the arrangements of these songs as well, though at the end, McCartney was sometimes recording uh, songs without contributions from all the other Beatles, and Lennon was certainly one of them who disappeared. But Lennon actually disappeared from everybody's songs at the end for the most part. For example, during Abbey Road, he got uh, hurt in a car accident and just didn't participate in the recordings. Uh, the beat, the last Beatles recording session, John Lennon wasn't there. So th- those are some of the songs that he didn't really contribute to. He had the most important role as an arranger in getting involved in the tape music stuff that they created in their more experimental era. And uh, he got, he was really, both he and McCartney, but he particularly was really, really involved in uh, using new studio technology. And he was often in the actual recording booth instructing the engineers what to do. Uh, the Be- this is back with tape, so the Beatles actually physically cut tape up um, and put mm. it back together. And uh, the engineers helped them figure out how to do that, but they were actually doing some of the cutting themselves. And they were doing some of the recording when they, they you know, the Beatles were pioneers of samples, though they didn't call it samples back then because it was the 60s. And um, Lennon was actually recording stuff like at home sometimes and bring it in and slice it up. Though they also, the engineers also did a lot. So like I said, he was the band's lead singer. He was also their rhythm and occasionally lead guitarist. He usually played, early on he played acoustic guitar or tambourine, and then he also played electric guitar sometimes. Uh, He did play bass in the studio sometimes. He also, with Harrison, played slide guitar, though not as much as Harrison. He was one of the first Beatles to take up the piano, and so he played uh, piano, Hammond organ, eventually Mellotron as well, something called the Clavio line, which is a long, dead, you know, early analog uh, synthesizer. He played the harpsichord, actually. I, I should mention he also was the band's harmonica player. Early Beatles music has a lot of harmonica in it. That's all John Lennon. And then he played, like George Harrison, he played instruments he really didn't know how to play, but a lot more of them. Example being the saxophone, which he just plays without knowing how to do it. He also would be interested in other stuff. So he, he brought a white noise generator into the studio once. He also played a variety of percussion instruments like they all did by the end all the beatles were playing the percussion though he the john lennon was the first one to play percussion in addition to the drums because he was if he wasn't uh, playing guitar especially on the songs where he played harmonica he usually played uh tambourine as i said with george harrison the beatles weren't really credited for record production until abbey road but john lennon particularly was involved in the actual record production of his most avant-garde tracks before abbey road particularly i'm the walrus and revolution number no. nine which he was involved with not just the recording but also the mixing and like i said before he was involved in actually the creation of the actual samples and tape loops in many ways as a vocalist many people point to twist and shout as being a big highlight for him i'd say uh, in terms of songwriting i call your name is another highlight so is a hard day's night help ticket to ride i feel fine which um is also notable for a record production thing which we will get into no reply i'm a loser norman rain rain is where he gets more experimental so uh, tomorrow never knows is probably his most one of his most famous more experimental experimental tracks strawberry fields forever which most of us heard probably losing the sky with diamonds being for the benefit of mr kite is a more deep cut uh day in the life i'm the walrus and then he he went back he backed off the experimental stuff near the end and some of the stuff from the end there that i'm really fond of includes hey bulldog um versions of revolution happiness is a warm gun uh julia your blues everybody's got something to hide except for me and my monkey and then my favorite Beatles song of all time i want you she's so heavy as well as uh, come together and because and then of course his most infamous creation is revolution number nine 
if you've seen The Simpsons, you've seen them parody it, uh, where they have a barbershop track, which has um, Barney saying number eight and burping over and over again, and that is a parody of Revolution Number Nine. So he was early on, he was the lead Beatle. He was the original lead singer, and at least for the first couple of years of the band's career, he was the primary songwriter, despite what the songwriting credits say. Uh, for example, on Hard Day's Night, their third uh, LP in the UK, he wrote nine of the 13 songs on his own and co-wrote another three. That brings us up to 12 with McCartney. Uh, so McCartney only wrote one by himself. On the later albums, though, the rules reverse, with McCartney usually writing more of the material than Lennon. Lennon's songs are characterized by a less bubbly view of the world than Paul McCartney's. He was the first Beatle and definitely one of the first rock songwriters ever to be influenced by Bob Dylan. And as such, he was the first Beatle, British rock singer, actually, not just Beatle, to attempt to stop writing happy love songs and then to stop writing love songs altogether. As I said, in later years, his compositions, which calling them songs is a little misleading, stopped resembling uh, conventional rock songs and were influenced by Indian music, but also avant-garde art music like music concrete. And that influence actually came from Paul McCartney, weirdly. But he also continued to write traditional songs as well. And as I just noted, he sort of got bored of the, the really radical stuff and started writing more traditional songs again right before the band broke up. He was, uh, in many ways, the most art-oriented Beatle. He was the least, and possibly because of the three main Beatles, he was the least accomplished on his instruments. That's not to say he was a bad musician, but it's very clear you can go watch Get Back Now and see that he isn't quite the musician that Paul McCartney or George Harrison are, especially Paul McCartney. But you can also just hear it in the playing. And I like to say that if the Beatles helped invent like the musical future, which I'm trying to allege here, art rock owes more of a debt to John Lennon and prog rock owes more of a debt to Paul McCartney. Um, but that is a very, very broad generalization that I'm not sure I can actually uh, defend. So as a guitarist, John Lennon was capable. His few solos are almost always identifiable as not sounding quite up to par with his other band members catalog, uh, with the exception of I Want You probably. And this is best evidenced by the famous um, Beatles coda, The End, the, the song The End on Abbey Road, where you can listen to the three of them play and it's really easy to spot Lennon because he's basically just vamping. Whereas like Harrison and McCartney are playing actual solos. <laughs> and it's just sort of like strumming along, uh, despite the fact that he's been given a spotlight. However, Lennon does have one shining moment in the history of the electric guitar. And that is, he was the first rock musician to play feedback on a single, possibly the first ever on any record. And that is on uh, I Feel Fine, which we will get into. He was also the band's harmonica player, as I mentioned, and uh, when it was on a prominent part of their music, but eventually it dropped out. He was an early keyboardist, as I mentioned, and he began to write on the piano as well, which is something that uh, they didn't do initially. And... As I said before, he played a bunch of instruments he didn't really know how to play, but unlike Paul McCartney, who we'll get to in a moment, he didn't really master them, whereas Paul McCartney would pick up something new and learn how to play it immediately. If you're wondering, John Lennon's is the more nasally voice, and he has a less range than Paul McCartney. So usually when it's really, really high or lower, it's McCartney, and if it's more nasally or more gravelly, it's uh, Lennon and Generally speaking, the person who wrote the song is the lead singer, though that's not true 100% of the time. It's true like 90-something percent of the time. And the same thing goes with George Harrison, by the way. George Harrison sang lead vocals on all of his songs. He sang lead vocals on like a couple songs. He didn't write mostly covers. But I think there's one Lennon McCartney song George Harrison sang lead vocals on. So though McCartney was the first Beatle to really get into record production, John Lennon was the first Beatle to really take it seriously and take it forward into new areas. And in that sense, 
was possibly a little bit more influential overall in that regard. But of course, he also lost patience with that at some point. So that brings us to Paul McCartney, who is by the end of the Beatles and very clearly in Get Back, the leader of the band. He composed approximately 65 of their songs and Crow wrote another uh, 37. Of those 65, he wrote lyrics of about 62 of them and co-wrote the lyrics of about 30 of those 37 co-writes. He also wrote a ton of songs that didn't make the final cut, especially as the band was starting to fall apart. And they, most of those did appear on his early solo albums. Um, so like his first two albums in particular are full of songs that he'd written while he was in the Beatles. He, he was, of course, an important part of arranging those songs as well. And the longer the band was together, the more of a role he had in that. And you can see that in Get Back, where he is like trying to tell everyone what to do. He also sometimes was a one-man band. So especially on the White Album in particular, he would sometimes play every instrument on track or all but one or two instruments. And he, uh, this is partly because he was just really, really capable of playing anything he picked up and also because he was perhaps better at expressing what he wanted people to do uh, than, than others or understanding it. And he seems, especially in Get Back, you can see he's better at communicating musical ideas, even though none of them could write music. He also was the first Beatle to become involved in orchestral orchestral arrangements, even though he couldn't write music. And so in the early Beatles songs with orchestras, he actually sometimes suggested musical ideas to George Martin, who would then write the actual orchestration. So he was famously the, the band's bassist, but he actually started as one of their two lead guitarists, along with George Harrison. They had a bassist in the Beatles early on named Stu Sutcliffe, who we're not talking about. And then when that guy quit to go uh, back to school, Paul McCartney took over the bass. So one of the reasons his bass guitar playing is, is different from bassists of the time is because he was not a traditional bassist. And he actually, infamously among musicians, his choice of his favorite bass is like apparently like people are just like, that's a shitty instrument. Why would you choose it? He also did play uh, guitar early on. He played acoustic guitar and eventually he started playing electric in the studio as well. And like I said, if you want to pick out a Paul McCartney guitar solo from a George Harrison one, it's going to be bluesier and grittier and, and often louder, a lot more like just grit to it, for lack of a better word. I have various issues with Paul McCartney. But like he is a great, in terms of feel anyway, I find he's a great uh, lead guitarist. He also, though he may not have been, I off the top of my head, I don't think he was the first Beatle to play keyboards on a, a song. John Lennon, I think, was. Paul McCartney soon took it up too and mastered it immediately and was all, immediately a much better pianist than anybody else in the band. He's just that kind of person. So he plays keyboards all over their their albums. He also took up other instruments like the other guys but he actually figured out how to play them including things like the flugelhorn and the trumpet he infamously uh took over drums when ringo Starr quit the band and just played the drums i i learned from get back that john lennon could also play the drums but he never actually made it onto a recording whereas like paul mccartney is the drummer on a couple white album tracks more than a couple he's been able to play anything he put his mind to and actually there i don't i wish i could tell you the name of the special but he made a special a number of years ago in the aughts where he is performing in a in a theater in the UK to an audience and he writes a song in front of them and he does so by picking up an instrument playing like a a riff or something looping it and then picking up another one and literally creating a song using modern technology and his ability to play any instrument he's ever seen in front of 
in front of a, an audience. And it's like, it's one of the best demonstrations I've seen of his ability to just do whatever the hell he wanted. Um, even though he's untrained, like he's unschooled, like they all are. It's kind of insane. I'm always very impressed by people who can just like, you give them a new instrument they've never seen before. And like half an hour later, they figured out how it works and like, are like very competent on it. As I mentioned before, I'm repeating myself here, no credits on production to Abbey Road with one actual exception in the case of Paul McCartney. He actually was credited as a producer on a, a deep cut slightly before that, uh, but he did contribute to the production discussions like George Harrison and John Lennon did, but also he was involved briefly with the tape looping and stuff, so that was much more John Lennon's cup of tea. Vocally, he has a number of prominent moments, Love Me Do, to, Till There Was You, Long Tell Sally, She's a Woman, really check that out. But yesterday, possibly the Beatles' most famous song he wrote. He also uh, shows off on guitar on Taxman, which is worth checking out. I think Eleanor Rigby is one of their better, uh, more notable accomplishments, and he wrote that, and he's essentially almost the only performer on it from the Beatles. For No One is another highlight. Got to get you into my life. Uh, Penny Lane, and then actually almost all of Sgt. Pepper, Home, Lonely Hearts Club Band, if you uh, like that album, it's his baby. And we'll get into why. Some other tracks that I'd check out uh, include Fool on the Hill, Back in the USSR, Helter Skelter, and The Suite on the Second Side of Abbey Road, which is, again, his baby, as well as Let It Be, which you can see him writing uh, during Get Back, which is pretty cool. Watching, Actually, one of the cool things about Get Back is watching Paul McCartney write songs in front of other people and just like, you know, sort of being, I have never seen that footage before. And as someone who grew up with the Beatles, it was really neat to see someone actually just how his process and just how he just like work it out in front of people. So he was the most versatile Beatle in terms of uh, both his abilities and his interests. He was the silly little love song writer, that's his words, of the band. And he tossed them off seemingly endlessly. And he had more and more as he went on. Whereas Bob, uh, John Lennon was listening to Bob Dylan and art music, Paul McCartney was taking note of other pop music in addition to art music. So he was influenced by Motown, he was influenced by Phil Spector, he was influenced by the Beach Boys, and much other stuff. Also notably, unlike the other Beatles, he was influenced by traditional British pop music and American popular song, which would come to be a thing later in their career. Unlike John Lennon, whose songs became more adventurous by embracing the avant-garde, most of McCartney's songs became more adventurous by Brit embracing certain traditions. And so he, though he was also involved in weird studio tinkering, he was interested in reaching back into the past at other song forms and trying to like sort of graft them to rock music. Whereas Lennon for a little while, anyway, it was like, what is the weirdest thing I can possibly do? And so that, that creates an interesting dynamic, especially on their later albums. So, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that Paul McCartney is not considered by many people to be one of the greatest basses of all time, unless it's in terms of an influence thing, because, of course, the way he played the bass was somewhat influential, but he was never considered to be a real true virtuoso like Harrison was on the car. But and it's worth noting, if you listen to Love Me Do, which we will in the next episode, you can hear how simple his bass playing was early on. It's The Love Me Do bass line is, is pathetic is too strong a word, but it is not super compelling. And he did improve as a bass player as he went on. But the thing, as I said before, that is incredible is that like it didn't matter what instrument he played. He could get up to a standard that was well above average on anything, anything that you put in front of him, it seems. And we'll talk about over over the course of the career, we'll talk about songs in which he's playing all sorts of instruments, everything from like a vibraphone to a recorder 
you know, to synthesizers and all, all sorts of stuff. And uh, he was talented also as a percussionist. As I said before, they all sort of played backup percussion. But he, he got really into like actual, like uh, sophisticated percussion instruments as well. As I said, he replaced Ringo Starr as the band's drummer briefly. Yeah, he can, he, he's a one-man band. But the thing I want to focus on most of all about Paul McCartney is how great a singer he was. I would say he's the best British male rock singer of the 1960s. Some people would say Mick Jagger. But honestly, I'd say Mick Jagger is almost is, is a huge chunk of Mick Jagger's appeal is the attitude, not the technique. And you could like talk about Roger Daltrey of The Who, but he, he was all power. That's all he was. And you could say Steve Winwood uh, would be another candidate or, or Van Morrison, both of whom were great singers. But I'm not sure either of them quite have the range Paul McCartney does, both stylistically and, you know, in terms of octaves. I would say if you're not sure about that, watch Get Back or you can also listen to the demo of Oh Darling on Anthology 3 where I was listening to it once when I was a teenager and my mom walked in the room and asked who it was and I told her and she was like, oh, I thought it was a woman, which is like the best example I can think of of demonstrating his his range. He was also notable for uh, conceiving the the suites of songs that distinguished a couple Beatles albums at the late end of their career and he was the big thinker in the band coming up with album concepts and just the big plans for the band as they were falling apart at the end, most of which didn't always come to fruition, but like he was the guy who had the ambition, even if John Lynn was more into like really, really avant-garde stuff and making that stuff, Paul McCartney had the grand big ambition. So lastly, we have Richard Starkey, AKA Ringo Starr. He composed two songs. Maybe he was credited with composing two songs on his own and credited with co-writing two other songs. He wrote the lyrics to, to two of those, both songs he wrote and co-wrote lyrics to one song that McCartney wrote for him. In Get Back, you can see him starting to write Octopus's Garden, and you can see George Harrison possibly writing it for him on camera. <laughs> oh, dear. As, uh, as, well, I mean, it's hard to know. But Ringo Starr comes in with this really, really, like, basic, basic track with the, like, the the hook from the chorus and george harrison like starts showing him different chords and being like do this instead <laughs> so anyway we don't really know how much ringo star had to do with the arrangements beyond maybe some of the percussion and in fact if you watch get back so much of what he does is just sit there and play and like make jokes and so as i will talk about a little bit more in a second it feels like more of his role was like is it like a culture setter as they would say in sports or like, you know, just someone who um, made everyone feel good and happy and, and, and got everyone working rather than actually contributing a lot to the ideas. But that's, that might be slightly unfair. So notably he played the drums on almost all other tracks with a couple of exceptions. We will talk about in later episodes. He also played a whole bunch of different percussion instruments and he is credited with playing piano and Hammond organ on a couple of songs. It's worth noting that, those songs have really really primitive like the the piano he plays on on one song that he wrote is like i believe it's two chords and the chords are like one finger apart basically like one note apart there's one song he plays a hammond organ and he literally just holds down a note and then of course he assisted with the production officially on abbey road he did actually contribute tape loops and samples he was he did get involved in that stuff not as much as lennon and mccartney and harrison but he did contribute thoughts in the production, and you can see that in Get Back at least a little bit. He was very clearly the least of the Beatles. He was a competent drummer. He, some people have told me, I think including you, Dave, that he, the legend has it that his time was 
excellent compared to some people that he actually just really had a great sense of uh tempo in a way that other people didn't including other drummers like i would point out say keith moon of the who for example who is an incredible drummer in terms of like dexterity and stuff but maybe can't keep time very well you can listen to his one and only drum solo in beatles history on the end it is famous but it's really not you know if you're a drum solo aficionado you're not gonna like think about it much I really do think he was in the band more for his personality than anything else. And Brian Epstein, their late manager who uh, died partway through their career and one of, and they actually sort of his shadow hangs over, get back a little bit, may have chosen him partly for his appeal to the public, but also partly because he was just a good foot personality wise with the other band members. Well, I mean, you need someone in there who's going to keep the peace when you have yeah. big talent like that. Yeah, and he was and he was a good teammate, right? Like like that yeah. was the thing. It's like he was a good teammate. He did he was the first Beatle to quit, though he came back, but that was also a bit of a wake up call to them and and when he did quit was in uh was actually uh 2 years before they eventually broke up. So, but yeah, he was he was you're you're absolutely right. You you need a smaller ego and he certainly had the least ego of all four of them. But yeah, he's least he's least notable in terms of his uh, involvement in the band in terms of uh, their impact on music ever since. But I'd say his most notable contribution to rock drumming is that he saw himself as a part of the whole and he never took it upon himself to be showy. In fact, the infamous drum solo on the end, he had to be talked into it. Like people had to persuade him to do it because to him, that was not what drumming was, which is interesting. So now we would need to talk about George Martin, the Beatles producer for all but. Well, all of their albums and sort of Let It Be, which is the album that was created, that you can watch being created during the Get Back movie or TV series. George Martin probably did co-write some parts of Beatles songs that he was never given credit for. Also notably, he wrote the entire film score to the uh, soundtrack of Yellow Submarine, which the Beatles were not really involved in in any way. He arranged all the session musicians' work on the Beatles songs for the breakup, except for the Indian musicians. And there might have been one other, actually, one other track on Sgt. Pepper, which he didn't, he might have, he either didn't conduct it or didn't write it, I can't remember which. Uh, Though, as I mentioned before, Paul McCartney did suggest some musical ideas to him that he sometimes turned into uh, scores for the session musicians. There are a couple instances where he didn't conduct the session musicians because he was on vacation and the Beatles just didn't stop recording. But basically, this is true all the way up until Let It Be, in which the orchestra on Let It Be, at least the non-naked version, the one that came out in 1970, was conducted by Richard Anthony Hewson on the instructions of Phil Spector, and we will get into why that happened uh, later on. George Martin also played keyboards on a whole bunch of songs, a piano, harmonium, organ, mellotron, harpsichord. You name it. He also played Glockenspiel at some point, and he was involved as well with the tape loops and tape effects. He produced, as I said, all but part of one album, and he was involved in the mixing of those albums, even if he wasn't hands-on because of the traditional distinction between producer and engineer back then. He is sometimes thought as the fifth Beatle. He played keyboards before they were playing keyboards, and he was better as a better keyboardist generally than they were until Paul McCartney got up to standard. I think George Martin was responsible. Uh, like his 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 string arrangements and horn arrangements and wind arrangements on Beatles songs from about 1965 onward are often like really really incredible if you think about it. Certainly, the 
given the quality of the time. He was much more aware of other stuff. Like sometimes he'd take inspiration, like film music and stuff, things that other other producers were not really or arrangers were not really doing. But also he was really, really open minded. And the the best example of that, which we will get to, is a day in the life where when we talk about that song, I'll talk about the thing that he did with the orchestra. So it's a chicken or egg question whether George Martin's forward-thinking production made the Beatles more innovative than they already were, or whether the forward-thinking of the Beatles themselves prodded George Martin into being one of the most innovative producers of the era. Certainly, if you look up his other credits post-Beatles, you will see not a lot of interesting stuff from an innovation perspective anyway, though he had a really successful producing career afterwards. People would seek him out. But you know, it's worth noting also that the Beatles' solo music doesn't really hold up to the the standard of the group. And so we don't really know, but the fact of the matter is, is that George Martin helped. It was a marriage and his willing, his openness to the Beatles weird idiosyncrasies helped. And maybe the fact that he was classically trained as well helped, but the five of them together really worked in a way that, you know, these marriages don't often work. And it was sort of a, at least for a while anyway, it was a relationship of equals where even though he was older and a trained musician, he treated them seriously and helped bring their um, musical ideas to life in a way that I think not a lot of producers of that age would have done because it was a very producer, as we talked about last episode, it was a very producer-centric industry at the time. And even though he was younger than a lot of these producers and he he wasn't famous and he didn't really have that reputation yet, he easily could have sort of force them to play in more traditional ways and make music in in a more traditional narrow band and he didn't and i think that's to his internal credit it's also worth talking briefly about the beatles engineers and it's another chicken or the egg question whether the beatles benefited from a special group of engineers or whether those engineers just had to do what they were told to do because you know the beatles had become the most popular band in the world by this point Especially from Revolver on, the Beatles engineers, most notably Jeff Emmerich and future David Bowie producer Ken Scott, bucked conventional recording wisdom and did all sorts of things pop music engineers weren't supposed to do. They stuck microphones inside instruments, they cut up tape, they threw that tape in the air, they spliced it back together after throwing it in the air, and they did everything else they could to get their Beatles ideas on tape. Even future Pink Floyd producer and one-hit wonder Norman Smith, who was the Beatles engineer for the their least studio-driven albums, their early albums, allowed unconventional things on record, such as the guitar feedback on I Feel Fine. This was against his training. They were working in a world that was pretty unaware of the constant progression of multi-track recording in the U.S. because they were in the U.K. And they they had four-track when the U.S. had eight-track. They had eight-track when the U.S. had 16-track. They, they were getting to 16 when the U.S. had like 64. For most of the Beatles' career, the UK industry was behind the times in terms of um, multi-track recording compared to the states, and I think it was only the very only Abbey Road that they ever got their hands on like the actual current like best level of like like 64 tracks or whatever it was uh, that was had been available for years in the US to high-profile bands, and so they were so the engineers did more with laugh. Like I said, they put microphones where they weren't supposed to go. They slowed things down, they sped things up, they flipped it around, they cut it up. And then they also, along with the Beatles themselves, created some of the first samples in the history of popular music. Uh, though, if I'm not mistaken, the Beach Boys beat them to it with one particular song. 
but they the Beatles did a lot more of it very aggressively, and they did it with these this group of engineers that have sort of been forgotten, or unless you're a really big uh, fan of uh, music history, uh, recording history. And I don't know to what extent it was that particular group. Like, interestingly enough, Norman Smith, who I mentioned before as the early engineer, it's his departure where the Beatles get way more aggressively weird. And who knows what where that was he got promoted essentially to a producer and went off to work with pink floyd soon but like i don't know what uh his departure had to do with them getting more avant-garde i don't know whether they would have gone that way had he stuck around they just evolved at the same time whether they needed jeff emmerich to show up and and be like yeah i'll do that or whether it was just like they had been at they just thought of those things when the new engineer showed up but it's worth noting that these guys played a an unheralded role in the things that happened. Lastly, there's a few other people I just want to mention. The first is Billy Preston, who you can watch in Get Back, him show up and get the Beatles to behave themselves because there was a, another per, a stranger in the room. He is an American uh, keyboardist. He joined them for Get Back, and so he plays on a bunch of recordings that made it onto Let It Be as well as Abbey Road. The Beatles' personal assistant, Mal Evans, provided all sorts of weird little noises throughout their career cowbells he held down an organ one note once um he was just there constantly and so sometimes he was a amateur musician on some of the recordings the beatles really didn't use session musicians up until 1965 except for george martin but after that they started being involved with some others like i said like billy preston also their wives briefly contributed uh, backing vocals on uh, a couple uh songs and there is a yoko ono lead vocal briefly on one song their most famous guest appearance is probably Eric Clapton on While My Guitar Gently Weeps, but Brian Jones of the Rolling Stones also contributed vocals and saxophone to some Beatles songs. Donovan, who is now, I think, long forgotten to the world, but who was once a big star, is on Yellow Submarine and possibly co-wrote the lyrics. Noted session keyboardist Nicky Hopkins, who played with the Rolling Stones and The Who and many others, also appears briefly. And then uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, more classically trained session musicians, some of whom were not credited, but Alan Civil is the most famous. He was a horn player. And then Chris Thomas, uh, George Martin's backup producer, also briefly played keyboards. That's it, basically. Until Phil Spector comes in and, and remixes the tracks on Let It Be, everything else that we're going to talk about going forward, the Beatles played themselves. And the importance of that is that that was less done in the 50s and 60s than it would become. It was much more common to bring in outside help whenever someone, the producer, the label deemed it necessary. And to give you an example, one of the Who's first singles, if possibly their first single I can't explain, uh, features Jimmy Page, who was then the star of the British session musician scene, playing lead guitar because someone decided Pete Townsend wasn't a good enough guitarist, as an example. Anyway, that's it for this episode. A big, long spiel about who they were. And the next episode, we will actually get into their music. So are you contending that the, I guess, the change from session musicians to, I don't want to say jack of all trades, but that's sort of what's coming to mind, where, you know, you would do almost everything on the album, and you see all these people who have, you know, 18 instruments credited to them in a yeah. production. So you're, you're contending that that's a uh, Beatles-driven phenomenon. Well, it's a McCartney-driven phenomenon, but yeah, a little bit, yeah. Okay. That they helped create the idea. Like, so to give you, to contrast that with Brian Wilson, Brian Wilson quit 
live performance uh, a year or two before the Beatles did and retreated to a studio to make his own music like the Beatles would soon do. But he did it with the Wrecking Crew, like, you know, the best session musicians in the entire world hung out in his like studio and made and he told them what to play and they played it. Whereas the Beatles didn't do that. The Beatles mostly hung out with themselves and, you know, endlessly tinkered. And like, like I said, stuff happened. Yeah, there were a few people who joined them here and there, but the most part, it was them by themselves and George Martin and the engineers, and that was it. And, okay. And that has had a, it may not have an obvious effect on music for some people, but it's actually had an obvious effect because, of course, at the end of the day, if you pay lots of money to a, a pro session musician, they're going to come in and play something very different than someone who is like, you know, figuring out how to play the trumpet. You know, it's going to have a very different sound. So, all right, that's it for this episode. So we will uh, we will be back next episode with the early Beatles records, starting with their single in the fall of 1962, "Love Me Do." 